Good evening and welcome. We now offer you another Somary Smith Pearson podcast. Today's title is Surprises and Anomalies in Sales of Trollope, published by ourselves in our autumn issue for 2010. The question that John addresses in this essay is why Trollope, who had a faithful readership throughout his lifetime, should have had such poor sales in the 50 years after his death. It is read here by the actor Neil Pearson. Surprises and Anomalies in Sales of Trollope Thirty years ago, I was asked to help compose a lecture on the popular appeal of Anthony Trollope. The question we had to address was why he should have had a faithful readership in his lifetime and be then largely shunned for the fifty years after his death. It had been traditionally accepted that he had written too much between 1860 and 1882, that none of his several publishers had made an overall profit from him, and that his autobiography, published posthumously, showed up his commercial spirit, something alien to the late Victorian literary scene. Research revealed that Trollope actually continued to be read, that there were Edwardian reprints of some lesser-known titles like The McDermott's of Ballycloran, his first, and The Bertrams, but that no one attempted anything like a library edition because he had been so remarkably prolific. A publisher who made a considerable contribution to his revival was Humphrey Milford at the Oxford University Press. If you had been looking for an accessible run of Trollope at any time between 1940 and 1985, your best solution would have been in his admirable world classics. And this explains why I have always had about 30 of them, though not the complete set of 36, on a top shelf ready for a long session of rereading. During last summer, I was given a chance to buy the library of a keen reader, Harold Edwards, sometimes senior partner in Pricewaterhouse Europe, whose working life had largely been spent abroad in Paris and Geneva. This produced a catalogue and a half of his selected books, most of which have now found happy new homes. Almost the last item that needed a decision was his set of Trollope, bought around 1950 and still in dust wrappers. With the exception of the Eustace Diamonds, the volumes were attractively uniform, their prices varying from five to six shillings each. He didn't necessarily read them, but he had them there for reassurance, plus that feeling that if he'd never tried Nina Balatka but knew that it was set in Prague, it could be picked up whenever he planned a visit. I wasn't sure myself that I wanted to part with this handsome collection. Why not take them home and trade in what I'd had on my shelves since the early 1970s? This led me to look more carefully through my old copies, in one of which, at some unknown time, I had inserted a roneoed sheet of paper with details of their original publication. I wish I could remember where, when, or from whom I acquired this invaluable list. At Haywood Hill we were always on close terms with the London reps for the Oxford University Press. If we complained to them about the counterproductively high prices of titles from the Clarendon Press, they complained to us about their miserable sales figures on which some of their salary depended. We had always supported the world's classics as a series, and were dismayed when their long-established format was abandoned 
and exchanged for paperback. The then rep visited us every three weeks. Did I perhaps ask him if a sales manager might have a checklist of how many trollops have been sold since they were first launched? Here, anyway, were the dates and numbers of all printings for the Barchester series, the Palliser series, and seven of the individual novels. From these bare facts, I have now extracted two lists, the total figures for the various print runs and a checklist in date order of the titles as they appeared. Both have surprises and apparent anomalies. I was sorry not to be able to share them with the late John Letts, founder and moving spirit of the Trollope Society, or Al Gordon, the great New York Trollopian. When the Trollope Society first discussed a full library set of Trollope in 48 volumes, we had a tricky time with an annual selection of four volumes per year. The solution must have been effective, as we completed the set in the 12 allotted years, 1988 to 2000. The Warden, first in the Barchester series, was published in Oxford's World's Classics in 1918, in a printing of 4,000 copies. Barchester Towers appeared in 1925, Dr. Thorne and Framley Parsonage in 1926, Last Chronicle of Barset in 1932, and Small House at Allington, the fifth in the series, in 1939. Clearly there was no one on Oxford's editorial committee who, like John Major, felt The Small House to be Trollope's best novel. The total sales figures cover the period from 1918 to the late 1970s. During that period, The Warden sold 82,500 copies, Barchester Towers 52,000, Dr Thorne 42,000, Framley Parsonage 32,000, Small House at Allington 22,000 and Last Chronicle of Barset 31,000. The final reprint of The Warden in 1969 was for 5,000 copies. The rest were reprinted between 1967 and 1976 in editions varying from 2,000 to 6,000. It is hard to analyse such figures without involving my own Barchester taste. I was recommended by a school contemporary to read The Warden at the age of 16 and didn't take to it. Later, as a bookseller, I used to suggest that Barchester Towers was a much more attractive introduction. By the beginning of his second Barsetshire novel, Trollope had the measure of the principal characters and their setting, much as Patrick O'Brien used Master and Commander to introduce Jack Aubrey. So how did the Warden sell in such vast numbers? It is shorter than most of Trollope's novels, and therefore more accessible, Possibly it was a regular choice as a set book, either by school teachers who wanted to convert their literary pupils, or by exam-setting academics who felt that Trollope was an undervalued Victorian writer. It certainly enjoyed handsome wartime success as a radio drama. Writing an article for the Trollopian in March 1946, Trollope on the Radio, H. Oldfield Box hailed Trollope's amazing revival. The reason for his present popularity, writes Box, is not far to seek. The war has given us our fill of excitements, fierce excitements of a very unpleasant kind. We have grown tired of the abnormal. We want to go back to ordinary life, lived in ordinary circumstances, among ordinary people. 
Box had proposed to the BBC an adaptation of The Warden, which was first broadcast in November 1942. Other adaptations by him followed, Barchester Towers in 10 episodes, Framley Parsonage in 12, and Dr Thorne in 13. The success of these plays, Box records, has been outstanding, and I constantly receive letters from listeners asking for more. Trollope, an author who had never previously been used as a basis for radio drama, has, during a period of a little over two years, been on the air in England for 36 weeks. These three serials and a revival of The Warden last May. Perhaps television might have worked the same magic for Oxford, but BBC Two's popular version of The Palaces, with scripts by Simon Raven, 1974, came shortly before the end of the hardback world's classics, and the Barchester Chronicles, 1982, scripts by Alan Plater, shortly after it. Oxford's figures for the Palliser series raise just as many questions as do the Wardens. Eustace Diamonds, usually listed as the third in the sequence, was the first to appear as a world's classic. 3,000 copies were printed in 1930, and there was a seven-year gap before Phineas Finn and Phineas Redux. In 1938 came Can You Forgive Her, officially the first Palliser, plus the Prime Minister and the Duke's children. Both the Phineas books had print runs of 5,000, as did the Prime Minister, the other three, 3,000 each. The total number of copies printed of each title before they were replaced by paperbacks was Can You Forgive Her? 26,700, Phineas Finn, 37,000, Eustace Diamonds, 43,500, The Prime Minister, 34,000, Phineas Redux, 21,000, and Duke's Children, 35,000. And these figures would have been far lower if the final printings, prompted by the 1974 television adaptation, hadn't added 10,000 copies to the totals, with the solitary exception of Phineas Redux, which merited no more than 3,000. On the basis of the Barchester novels, Trollope's greatest success came with his first and second in the series. With the Palaces, Eustace Diamonds scores highest. Was it ever turned into a play? Or was it more popular because it was unpolitical? Lizzie Eustace has a lovely part to play and plenty of actresses would like to play her. In contrast, what is the reason for the fifth in each sequence to score the lowest? Of course, for many readers of Trollope, borrowing from a library was to be preferred to buying and finding several feet of bookshelf space. Members of the London Library used to tell me regularly that they had been lucky enough to read novels like Cousin Henry or Lady Anna in their original cloth-bound first editions. In the school library at Winchester, an inconspicuous set of the Barchester novels dating from 1879 was on the open shelves for more than a hundred years, before it was noticed that the warden had been inscribed and presented by Anthony Trollope. All six volumes had survived without being borrowed or mislaid. My precious list gives sales figures for no more than seven individual titles. We have now finished with the two major series and have 24 more volumes of the world's classics collection to account for. The pioneer of the whole run as early as 1907 was, of all unlikely choices, The Three Clarks. 
Could this have been a favourite of Humphrey Milford, who was by then involved in the editing? Might he have chosen it because it related to Trollope's first employment as a civil servant? Whatever the reason, the sales cannot have been impressive, as his name didn't reappear as a world's classic author again until 1918, and of course Oxford publishing had been more than influenced by the First World War. The editorial board must have seen the warden as a much safer choice. Thereafter, they formed a plan to introduce major novels like Barchester Towers, 1925, Eustace Diamonds, 1930, or Last Chronicle of Barset, 1932, in a year on their own, and to print a group of two, three, or four minor novels in the intervening years. So, five years after The Warden, 1923 saw the publication of Belton Estate, one of Michael Sadlier's five-star novels, and the autobiography. The following year produced Rachel Ray, The Claverings, Vicar of Bullhampton, and Miss Mackenzie. In 1928, five more novels were added. First, Dr. Wartle's School and Sir Harry Hotspur, then Ayala's Angel, Cousin Henry, and The Kellys and O'Kellys. The American Senator followed in 1931, plus Tales of All Countries, the only collection of Trollope's short stories in this edition, and traditionally the most elusive to find second-hand. The remaining nine books come in no special order. Old Man's Love and Lady Anna in 1936, Ralph the Heir in 1939, The Way We Live Now in 1941, Is He Popenjoy in 1944, Nina Balatka and Linda Tressel, a single volume, John Caldigate and Mr. Scarborough's Family in 1946, and He Knew He Was Right in 1948. This leaves several more novels excluded, some, like Marion Fay and An Eye for an Eye, undeservedly, at least in my view, others, like The Land Leaguers and Brown, Jones and Robinson, hard to read by any standard. Of the novels that were published, it is difficult to understand why Miss Mackenzie appeared at such an early stage and Mr Scarborough's family so late. The latter had no more than two printings, each of 5,000 copies, the original reprint lasted till 1973, 27 years after its first appearance. Its low total of 10,000 may still have been higher than those titles that are not included on my list. Further sales figures are The Way We Live Now, 28,500, with the other five, Ayala's Angel, Belton Estate, Dr. Wartle's School, Orley Farm and Is He Popenjoy, between fourteen and 21,000. Trilopian taste varies from one generation to another. Literary editors nowadays might criticise the length of many of his novels and their almost invariable happy endings. He knew he was right, which only just made the world's classic canon, would find much greater favour today because the protagonist, Louis Trevelyan, proved too obstinate to bend to anyone else's will. In recalling so many titles in a single article, I am reminded of the huge range of Trollope's characters and the wonderful reading he has produced for so many admirers. If you have had an unfortunate early introduction to him, or have been scared by the number of long books that he wrote, take courage and persist. He is addictive and infinitely worthwhile. That was Neil Pearson reading Surprises and Anomalies in Sales of Trollope published in The Book Collector, 
for autumn 2010. The Book Collector is a literary journal founded by Ian Fleming in 1952, covering the writing and collecting of books. You can subscribe to our journal at thebookcollector.co.uk for as little as £6 per month and get access to our complete digital archive. We offer articles, book reviews, obituaries, sales results, catalogues, news, all for just half the price of a Netflix subscription. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.